I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world battle by battle. Thanks again for joining us on Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a quick hit for you. It's the Battle of Nineveh in 627 AD. But before we get stuck in, let's tackle some quick housekeeping. First off, shoot us a quick rating and review if you can on iTunes. It helps us to get noticed and heard by more people, which is always cool. So thank you for doing that. Next, check us out on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search Cauldron, and you can see all the various extras that you would be able to get with a small donation. Those extras range from cool show gear like shirts and hats to uh, various early content or extra content and the ability to, in some cases, pick certain battles or weapons that we would highlight and research for you. Uh, Also... If you can and want to, go to Instagram or Facebook and search Cauldron, and you'll be able to see all the various images, maps, and videos that we post throughout the week that we are researching that particular battle. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get into the way, way back machine. Let's go to 627 AD and the Battle of Nineveh. So as the Roman world shifted and changed with the collapse of the western portion of the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman, or Byzantine Empire, took center stage. With its capital city, the mighty Constantinople, on the shores of the Bosphorus, the Byzantine Empire was the economic, cultural, and military hub of the late antiquity and uh, all the way through the Middle Ages Mediterranean world. The great successes of Emperor Justinian and his generals Narsus and Belisarius, who, by the way, we will eventually cover because both of those guys have some pretty amazing victories under their belts. Uh, These guys had pushed the Byzantine Empire's borders out to the greatest extent that they would reach. But by the later part of the 6th century, the Byzantine world was under attack on all fronts. Emperor Maurice was faced with a two-front war against the Avars in the Balkans, which is like modern-day Greece, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, and the Sassanids of Persia in the east. After years of fighting in the east, Maurice finally saw peace on the horizon. He assisted the dethroned Khosrau II in regaining his throne, likely even adopting the Persian king as part of the peace process. So Maurice spent the following years consolidating the empire's position and trying to uh, strengthen it by fighting back the Avars, Uh, but a couple of his 
choices. His he, he misjudged a couple of political plays, one of which was uh, there was a bunch of captured uh, Byzantine soldiers, I think almost 12,000 strong, and he refused to ransom them. That didn't go over well with the military or with the, uh, the, the general public. Um, he also, uh, instead of, I, I want to say instead of wintering some of his armies, he tried to force them into a, a winter campaign, and that didn't go well. So he, he made a couple of misguided choices, and, and that led to a general unrest in the military. And in 602, the former general of Maurice, whose name was Focus, uh, Focus, that's P-H-O-C-A-S, Focus uh, decided to become a usurper and make a play for the crown. And he moved against Emperor Maurice. And upon entering Constantinople and being proclaimed emperor, Focus had his men track down the fleeing Maurice and his family. The now, uh, now emperor Focus had his men uh, find them, and he sent the former queen and her three daughters to a monastery to live out the rest of their days. But Maurice himself was beheaded, but not before he was forced to watch all six of his sons murdered by Focus's men. Now, not one to forget a debt, or maybe, in my opinion, miss an opportunity to gain wealth and power, Khosrau II declared war against the murderous Focus in an attempt to avenge the man who helped him regain his throne. Emperor Focus was as incompetent as he was cruel and found himself completely unable to deal with the whirlwind blows that were being landed by the Persian offensive. Egypt was quickly lost, and most of the Levant soon followed and had been taken, and even the Slavs and Avars had piled on with attacks of their own, pushing the entire Byzantine Empire closer and closer to the brink of collapse. It simply couldn't deal with all the holes that were being punched in its uh, various borders. So by 610 AD, the soon-to-be Emperor Heraclius set sail from Carthage with an icon on the prow of his, of his ship, and he headed for straight for Constantinople. A genius for organization and a brilliant strategist, Heraclius started striking back at the enemies of the Byzantine world, eventually even putting the Sassanids on their heels. Grasping for momentum, but unwittingly overstretching themselves, the Sassanids laid siege to Constantinople, but even with the help of the Avars, the walls of Constantinople, which were famously thick, proved to be too strong and the siege failed. Heraclius now had to decide what to do, and he decided to take the war to Persia. Heraclius took his army of some 30 to 60,000 men and began to strip the Persian heartland of any and everything edible. 
While the siege of Constantinople was happening, he had arranged for a force of Gok Turks to raid and ravage the Persian borderlands, but now Heraclius was moving deep into the enemy lands. Khosrau II's main palace was located in the city of Dastagrid, and in 626, Heraclius crossed the Zab River into modern-day Kurdish Iraq, and it was clear that Heraclius was targeting the enemy king's palace and city. Marching throughout the area, Heraclius switched direction and moved north, eventually camping on a flat plain near the ruins of the former city of Nineveh, the ancient Assyrian capital city that had been torn down and destroyed in a rebellion. The flat plain would give Heraclius's elite unit, his cataphracts, plenty of space and room for movement. Cataphracts were a form of a very heavy cavalry, with both the rider and the mount completely covered in scale armor. Cataphracts had been used since early antiquity by uh, the, the Scythians and Sarmatians and saw pretty much continuous use right through the High Middle Ages being utilized by the Romans, the Achaemenids, the Sassanids, the Alans, and even the Mongols and the Chinese had a version of the uh, Persian cataphract. Most often armed with uh, a lance as their primary weapons, cataphracts were basically functioned like a more mobile battering ram, essentially being pointed at a line of infantry by their commander and then charging home, ideally shattering the foot soldiers in front of them. The Sassanid army would have a chance if their missile-firing troops could pick off the cataphracts while charging, but Heraclius hoped that uh, that would not be the case. And unfortunately for uh, Razad, the general King Khosru II had chosen to lead his 13,000-strong army, uh, the battle began under a soupy fog, which made accurate targeting of moving enemies totally impossible. Tying, uh, trying to recover from the failure of his missile-throwing units, Razad uh, grouped his men together in, into three masses and flung them headlong at Heraclius's far superior numbers. Heraclius, not wanting to leave anything on the table, feigned a retreat and then brought his army crashing back into the over-pursuing Sassanids. You see, the Sassanids had 3,000 or supposedly 3,000 reinforcements on the way. So I guess my thinking is that they had hoped to get the battle going and then those reinforcements would come at a critical moment to bolster their numbers and try and make a breakout. I don't know if there was a particular hope that splitting into three separate units would win the day, so much as it would prolong the engagement long enough for those reinforcements to show up. But unfortunately for the Sassanids, Heraclius's fake retreat had worked, and the Sassanid forces broke into utter chaos as Heracles, uh, Heraclius's Byzantine forces crashed back into them and started to rip them apart. Even with a possible five to one disadvantage though, the Sassanid forces fought fiercely for almost eight hours. Scrambling to try and pull his army together somehow, 
Razad bravely but foolishly challenged Heraclius to single combat. Now, this is unproven and we probably will never know the truth, but according to legend, Heraclius lifted the Sassanid general's head from his body with one single stroke of the sword. And then the ensuing panic set in and the Sassanid army began fleeing in all directions. It's not known how many of Heraclius' men died at the Battle of Nineveh, but the Sassanid army was almost cleaved in half, having lost somewhere between five and 6,000, again, out of a total around th uh, twelve to 13,000. And again, those reinforcements, the 3,000 reinforcements that Razad was hoping to get, those never showed up, so his army uh, ended up being pretty much destroyed. Moving deeper into Persian lands, Heraclius spent time plundering all the Persian territory that he could find, probably knowing that if he gave them the time to sort out their own affairs, the Persian people and the leaders would, would probably do so, and that way he would have to fight fewer and fewer battles. And, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, King Khosrau II was murdered by his own son, Kavad Siroz. I know I'm mispronouncing that, but that's what I've got. And uh, his son, Kavad, took his place and called for a truce with the Byzantines. The peace process showed how exhausted both empires were, as, Byzant uh, as the Byzantines demanded a whole bunch but within reason, and the Sassanids had no ability to resist. So the Byzantines made, made demands that were doable. They didn't ask for uh, the moon because they didn't want to continue the fight. Uh, Egypt, the Levant, and much of her eastern borders were returned to her, and the Byzantine Empire was also given a big fat indemnity payment. That's essentially uh, a cost of war payment. And then also maybe most importantly of all, the Byzantines were given back a portion of what's called the True Cross, which is the supposed cross that Jesus was crucified on. And this piece of the True Cross had fallen into Sassanid hands at the Siege of Jerusalem in 614. So, after the Battle of Nineveh, basically what ends is the Roman-Persian Wars which was a long running line, a series of wars that had been fought between uh, Rome in one form of Roman rule or another against the Persian kingdoms or empires in one form or another, whether it be the Sassanids, the Persians, or the Parthians. These wars had been going on since uh, basically to uh, around the time of senatorial Rome and, and the... Uh, the, the, the part that people tend to claim or the moment where these were kicked off was the death of Crassus and his legions at the Battle of Karhai or Karahi. Uh, so that's the end of the, the official end of the Roman Persian Wars. So for a time, all was right in the Byzantine world. Heraclius had paraded his holy relic and other spoils of war and the coffers of the treasury were once again overflowing. But, like the fog at Nineveh, 
This was merely a, a smokescreen. The almost 30-year war with the Sassanid Empire had so depleted and exhausted the Byzantines, not to mention destroyed almost utterly the Sassanids, that there was a, a, a basically a giant vacuum created. And when a new power arose in the Arab world, there was no one there to check it. And as we know, nature abhors a vacuum, and so the vacuum had to be filled, and marching right into that place within just a few years of the victory of Nineveh, the armies from Arabia marching under the flag of Islam were on the move and began to target the weakening old empire. Within his lifetime, Heraclius would see the loss of most of Egypt and the Levant, and after his death, the strengthening of the caliphate would go on to become an implacable foe of Constantinople, time and time again bringing the Byzantine Empire and therefore the Roman Empire to the very edge of destruction. All right, that's our quick hit story for today. I hope you enjoyed it. And again, for images and little tidbits, check out the Instagram, just search Cauldron. Please rate and review on iTunes. And if you're feeling particularly generous, donate by going to patreon.com and just search Cauldron. Ironing things out has been a real pain in the ass, but even with the holidays, I plan on having a couple episodes come out in December, so stay tuned for that. Next up is the Second Battle of El Alamein, so if you like your tanks sandy, your Nazis with a side of Rommel, and the good guys victorious, stay tuned for that. Thanks again for listening. Have a great weekend. Thank you.